Hi, this is John Harcher, and welcome to episode four of Valleys of Numenor. We finally reached the island. Now let's see where the plot takes us. Let's go. Episode four, the Mithril job. Wayne Yip returns to direct this episode, and our showrunners wrote this episode along with Stephanie Folsom, who created the show Paper Dolls that just got canceled by Amazon. And she also uh, wrote Toy Story 4. My son hated the ending of that one. I mean, Andy does a nice thing. Get Bonnie his toys. And what does she do? She loses them all over the place. Anyway. This episode is titled The Great Wave, and we quickly find out why. Queen Regent Muriel is blessing the arrival of the new children of Numenor, asking for the island to watch out for them. Suddenly, she hears a rumbling outside. She heads to the balcony and sees enormous waves crashing over the mountains, eventually smashing right into the palace and drowning her. But then she wakes up. It's all been a dream. A very bad one, but still. Tamar, the head thug from last episode, is out in the street complaining about the elf and her friend. In the market, Chancellor Farazan is doing a walkthrough and shaking hands with all the merchants there. A young man calls to him. It turns out it's his son, Kevin. He points out Tamar stoking everyone up, worried that the elves are invading and no one's speaking for them. He also accuses the queen of being just like her dad, being soft on the elves. Ilindil's daughter, Arian, is in the middle of all this, worried things might get out of control. Farazan emerges and belittles the men, reminding them that their kind are descended from King Elros himself, who was able to take down Morgoth. They built their grand cities, but one little elf scares these guys off? He swears that he will make sure Numenor will always remain a kingdom of men. That settles the audience down. That and the fact he gave everyone boobs. Meanwhile, Kemen tries to pick up Arianne, but she gets called back to work. In the palace, the queen regent indeed brings Galadriel in front of her along with Elendo. She's quite annoyed the elf ran off to take a bunch of scrolls, but Galadriel tells her Halbrand may be the lost king of the Southlands and will need her help there to stop Sauron from taking over Middle-earth. Ariel says Numenor has decided to go their own way, but the elf responds that not all Numenorians think that way, as the queen shoots Elendil an angry glance. She ends the meeting, but Galadriel ups the ante by asking to see the real ruler of Numenor, Meriel's father. This request lands her in prison again. Out on the sea, Isildur and the rest of the cadets are preparing for their tests, including that guy I thought got tossed out last episode. Isildur hears the calling of the woman's voice again as he's daydreaming and decides to find a way off the ship. This time, he's the one that lets the rope slip. His two companions save it from going overboard, but the master of the ship isn't happy. Even though Isildur takes responsibility for it, the master tosses all three of them out of the core. Needless to say, his friends aren't happy. They hear him talking like his brother used to. Sounds like he's not around anymore, which would be a no-no. One of them, Valendil, talks smack about Isildur's dead mother, which almost breaks out to a brawl, but Isildur walks away. Over in the Southlands, Arendir finally gets to see who this Adar is. Turns out he's a tall guy with long hair and pointy ears. Wait a minute, an evil elf? Is that even possible? Well, they did have that whole kinslaying thing that the show can't talk about because it wasn't in the appendices, so... Anyway, he shows how he takes care of the orcs when he goes over to a wounded one, strokes his face, and sticks a knife into him. Well, 
you know, put him out of his misery. Arinder sneaks a sharper rock off the ground into his hand just in case. The evil elf tells him to go to the men in his old watchtower and I guess tell him to surrender. At said watchtower, the men who left the towns are all hiding there. But they didn't exactly have time to stock up, so they're running out of food already. Thiel mentions one of the people has food in his barn and he'll go get it. Bronwyn says absolutely not, but he and his friend go anyway. Kids, what are you going to do? They do come up with a bunch of food in a wheelbarrow. Theo goes to the tavern to find more, and is so desperate he like scrapes bits of grain off the floor. Like, Yum, that's got to be tasty. Suddenly the door closes and clouds come overhead. Theo gets up and jump scare, it's an orc! It goes to stab him, but he pulls out the broken sword. He stabs himself to get some blood flowing, and it repairs itself. After slashing the orc, he runs outside. The orc calls to the others, saying that the boy's got the hilt. But where is he? There's a well, so three guesses where he is. Of course, we get the obligatory guy, or in this case, orc, goes to the well to get some water, and someone's hiding in there. Guy looks down and doesn't see anything, but feels underwater at that point. You know, you've seen it before. Over in the region, the building of the fort is proceeding nicely. Celebrimbor mentions how Elrond reminds him of his father, Arendil, but he has concerns about what Doran may be hiding. Elrond then returns to Khazad-dûm and sees if he can either find Doran or get Disa to tell him, well, something. She tells him he's off mining quartz, but Elrond notices his axe is still there, and she's cooking his favorite meal. She comes up with some semi-plausible explanations a bit. Later on, Doran and Disa are walking by the waterfalls. It turns out he's working in one of the old mines, but he doesn't know his elf friend is using his bigger ears to listen in on them whispering. Elrond goes down to the mine he heard Durin speak about. There has to be some kind of secret entrance. These dwarves have them all over the place. He remembers Durin's children were singing a type of nursery rhyme, so he tries hitting the rock in time to the song, and what do you know? It wakes! The old mine still has dwarves working in it, and over to the side, Elrond notices a strange glow from the rock. Just as he goes to look at them, Durin comes up behind him. He's mad the elf lied to him about what he really wanted, but Elrond swears he has no idea what they're hiding in the chamber. The dwarf makes him swear he'll never tell anyone what he's about to show him. It seems they've discovered a metal that's light and strong at the same time. It's very difficult to mine, though, and the king has kept their work on it to a minimum. The dwarves call it gray glitter, which in the elven tongue would be mithril. Then to show how difficult it is to get to it, the mineshaft collapses, trapping four dwarves in the cave. Back in Numenor, Arian is showing why she and Isildur are siblings. She's doing her own daydreaming of sorts when she's called to clean the floors. She jumps up and so happens to run right into Kemen and splashes him with the cleaning bucket. He is cool with it and offers to help out. See what guys will do to pick up a girl, you know, even back then. In the jail, Halburn guides Galadriel into what really has the queen upset that she mentioned going to see her father. Frauzon comes down to let them know the elf is to be sent back to her people, as it were. But when they open the door to let her out, she somehow is able to jujitsu them into the cell. Farazan draws his sword, but suddenly thinks better of it. Outside, Arian finds her brother, and he tells her he got drummed out of the cadets. But before he can talk any further, the guards all rush around trying to find Galadriel. 
you know, think of them as New Hope era stormtroopers. These guys just can't do anything right. I didn't know elves could fly in Tolkien's world, but somehow Galadriel ends up crashing through a window in the top of the tower. She goes to speak to the king, but Muriel is already there standing over a sick, decrepit old man in a bed. The elf realizes she's really miscalculated. So she asks the queen regent why she didn't follow in her father's footsteps and remain true to the elvish ways. The king, after his coronation, saw the separation from the elves as a bad thing and wanted to return things to the way they were. But the people wanted nothing of it and demanded Muriel rule in his place with a promise to quiet things down. She did, but her father also showed her a secret. He kept a palantir in the tower. It's that crystal ball thing the wizards had in the movies that Pippin tried to use in that one scene that didn't end well for him. Galadriel's done this before, but Muriel tells her that this one's going to be different. The elf puts her hand on it and sees a giant wave smashing into her. Numenor's future seems to be sealed, considered the two of them both saw the same thing. What the Valar gave, the Valar can take away if the men do not act in a virtuous manner, which apparently they have not. So Muriel figures, get rid of the elf, get rid of the problem. But it's not that simple, Galadriel warns her. If the evil that is rising in the Southlands takes over, then Numenor can fall as well. This can change if they stand together. But the queen sees too much danger and trouble ahead if she goes down that path. Back in those same Southlands, Theo's friend Rowan has returned with the food, but no Theo. He's still down in the well. Geez, you're going to catch cold if you stay down there much longer. What's it been, all day? The orcs are still looking, but the boy figures he's got to make a break at some point. Boy, if you thought those Numenorean guards were incompetent, they're like Spartan sentries compared to these orcs. I mean, the kid's two feet away from them, but they don't see him. But finally, one orc catches him looking for the broken hilt. Or as he's about to chop off the boy's arm, he gets a sword through the chest. Arendir arrives right on time. The two run through the woods, but they're not going to get very far because the director kicked in slow motion mode again. At least there's some action this time. They do this really nifty thing where Arendir catches an orc arrow in mid-flight and slings it into his bow and sends it back to them. That would have been a lot cooler in real motion. Now, somehow Bronwyn is able to find them in the middle of the dark woods. I guess that's what mama bears do. They make it out of the woods just in time for the sun to come up, and we know how much the orcs love sunlight. In Casa Doom, Disa is singing an ancient song to ask the mountain to aid in helping the trapped dwarf miners. It must have worked because Doran comes in and says they rescued them all. The king commands the mine be shut down, angering his son to the point where he doesn't want to speak to him anymore. Elrond tells the story of his father, who got the Valar to join the men of Gondolin to fight Morgoth and rewarded him with an eternity in the stars. Remember in the second episode, Sadok mentioned he'd heard of men going to the stars but not the other way around. He was referring to Arendelle. But this also meant he could no longer speak to his sons, and Elrond wishes he could just have one more conversation with him for good or ill. The prince returns to speak to his father. The old man looks almost dead, but he's just contemplating. He has to wear during the first crown to hear the counsel of the other dwarf kings, but his son can take advantage of it right now. Elrond has asked Durin to go to Linden with him. The king agrees they're not planning any ill intent, but something larger is at work. Back at the Watchtower, Arendir tells Bronwyn Adar's message that if they don't leave or swear loyalty to him, they'll be wiped out. In the barn area, Theo pulls out the sword hilt, but another man sees it and shows him he also has the mark of Sauron. 
He tells the boy that sword was made by Sauron himself and the Dark Lord is going to return soon, marked by that star falling. No mention of a big naked guy, but these prophecies can be vague sometimes. Back at the orc camp, Adar is told they know where the sword is. Galadriel gets on the boat that will take her back to her homeland with armed escort. Muriel is walking to the palace where she will announce to everyone what's happening when she notices the white tree is shedding leaves again. That means something is wrong. At her announcement, she declares she will take Galadriel, who emerges from the shadows, back to Middle-earth, bringing with her an army of volunteers who will aid the men of the Southlands in their hour of need. When asked who will serve, Isildur's two friends step up first, prompting him to volunteer as well. Then practically the entire island volunteers. Galadriel's mission has succeeded. For now. If you've taken a look around, there's a bunch of people doing their own Rings of Power recaps. I caught one by Ben Shapiro, and he reminded me of another very big influence on Tolkien's writing. He mentioned Tolkien based a lot of his earlier work on biblical stories, and Elendil was a stand-in for a well-known figure. I mean, think about it. He's a guy who gets on a boat to escape a flood. Sound like anyone else we know? Right. Tolkien was a devout Roman Catholic, and the stories from the Bible were as influential as any of his other sources. I mentioned the Valar were sort of the equivalent of the angels and archangels. A couple of them fall from grace, like another well-known angel did. So there's that as background. With that in mind, the subject of faith is central to this episode. The opening scene with Tamar got very close to being the type of modern-day commentary I was hoping the series would avoid. Someone's complaining about invaders taking jobs. Okay, I get it. But thankfully, that was pretty much as far as it went. When Farazan made his speech, it reminded me more of someone like Saul trying to rally the Israelites together than any sort of modern antecedent. The old king is like the old prophets trying to remind people of the way they used to live in happiness if they can just give up their current selfish ways. This leads to exile and rejection and tests those who remain faithful if they can stay that way in the face of great adversity. The queen had to basically pretend to reject her faith until a time came where she couldn't hide it any longer. In this way, we have to remember Numenor is not only a stand-in for Atlantis, but also Sodom and Gomorrah. The island was given to the men by the Valar, aka angels, and as long as they remained good and honorable, they would have great prosperity. But if they lost their way and used it for ill means, well, well, we'll see what happens in a few seasons. That theme was clearly present in all the stories in this episode, even the one for the men in the Southlands. They made the wrong choice before and suffered for it. They will have a chance to atone for it, but as we see with Theo, there's also the temptation of using power for the wrong reasons. Plus, there's still a big guy out there. Who is he and whose side will he be on? Maybe we'll get more of a clue next episode. So I put this down as the best written episode so far. And it is interesting that the show with the deepest roots and different aspect of Tolkien's writing was done by the showrunners. I've mentioned to people that before the show premiered, whenever I heard the cast talk about it, I'll be honest, I cringed. The things they wanted to focus on talking about, I had zero interest in it and it really didn't relate to Tolkien. But when Patrick and J.D. talked about it, I felt a little better that at least they would have a better focus on things. 
And while it hasn't been perfect, the fact they had a show like this in them does bode well for the future, at least there's a possibility of it. Next time we go back to the Harfoots and see if we get any clarity on their visitor. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to us. I'm John Hartra. Thanks for listening.